Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You may be familiar with Joan of Arc, who cut her hair and wore men's clothing and, you know, led the French army in a momentous victory in 1429. But what about all the other women who dressed like the men of their times and cultures to, well, get stuff done? Tracy Dawson wrote a book about them. I can personally take inspiration from these stories. You know what I mean? It feels, unfortunately, very timely. But the people in this book, they, in their way, took matters into their own hands. But what they did with their bodies. She's the author of Let Me Be Frank, a book about women who dressed like men to do they weren't supposed to do. And you're about to hear my conversation with her from a recent event sponsored by the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. When I was a kid, I was what you'd call a tomboy. I had three big brothers, and I really wanted them to like me. And I really didn't like wearing dresses. Now, I'm not sure exactly to what degree those Venn diagrams overlapped, but when the day came for me to march for the first time with Brownie Troop 94 in the Unionville Memorial Day Parade, I did not want to march in their standard uniform, which included a brown dress. So in perfect five-year-old fashion, I told my mom the night before the parade that I wanted instead to wear brown pants. So she took me to Caldor. Remember Caldor? We found a pair and I tell you, marching in that parade, wearing pants in a sea of dresses, it was scary and exhilarating. And maybe that's not the thing that's going to get me written about in books like the one you'll hear about today, although I do have a picture of it on today's webpage in case any historians need it. But I do know that since that fateful day, every brownie that would ever be in Troop 94 would know that they can wear the pants in this or any parade. Tracy Dawson would be slow clapping and nodding approvingly at that story. She's a comedian and the author of Let Me Be Frank a book about women who dress like men to do they weren't supposed to do. It's about women throughout history who took the dress and behavior of men in their culture and times to survive, to create art, to help their communities, and in some cases, even to hurt other women. I recorded this conversation with her recently as part of an interview series by the Mark Twain House and Museum here in Hartford. Now, before we get going, a disclaimer, there will be so many bleeps in this episode. So many bleeps. So brace yourself for my conversation with Tracy Dawson, which, by the way, I wore a suit and tie for. Hi, my friend. How are you? Hello. I'm excited. I I kind of have a, I want to do a dance. I'm feeling very excited. Hi, everybody. Howdy. I'm working on putting on this tie. How's it looking? Beautiful. A pink tie going on. Thank you. There's only one way I know how to tie a tie, and it's this way, and I'm not sure... It'll look great. I think that's the only way I know how to tie a tie as well. 
used to wear a lot of ties when I was in high school and college. I, I really enjoyed the tie situation. And my dad would be like, you took one of my good toys. <laughs> You're like, well, yeah, because I have good taste in ties. Oh, yeah. The outfit. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. I well, love it. I wanted to dress up uh, perfectly for this show, for this interview. Let me be frank. A book about women who dress like men to do they weren't supposed to do. Will you please talk about this title? You know, I came up with the title really fast, right? And I was like, that's maybe the best thing I've ever come up with. And so I have to come up with a project, you know, along with the subtitle, right? Like it's a book about women who dress like men to do they weren't supposed to do. It's called Let Me Be Frank. Like it always gets a good response. I feel that I've really done my work as a writer. And yeah, I mean, I just remember sitting on the couch and coming up with that title and being like, full of myself. I'm going to totally say the truth. I was like, that's the greatest title. (laughs) And so originally it was like a TV idea I thought I might have. I'm a TV writer. And I thought maybe this is an anthology show. And then, you know, it naturally progressed into a book, which I didn't see coming. And what an, what an amazing turn of events, because I didn't think I would uh, be a, someone who writes books. And I was like, I loved this. I loved every second of this. There was no angst there was not that much angst in this process. It seems like all I ever hear about writing a book is it's the hardest thing, period, for everybody all the time. Listen, I bet you that would be what I would be saying if it was a novel that I was writing, because I can't even imagine. I mean, novel writers, fiction writers, I bow down. I mean, even short fiction, even though I write fiction and television, it's it's a different, you know what I mean? It's a different medium. And I really like dialogue and I really like authentic voices, which is why I wrote this book in my authentic, very Tracy voice, because I wanted to talk to you, people reading it. But I would love to climb that mountain. I would like to say right here on the record, I'd love to climb the mountain of trying to write a a novel. I think it would break me. I think it would. (laughs) I really do. But I'm, you know what I mean? I'm a tenacious person, I'm told. So perhaps one day. Well, we could do like a long form interview where like every six months, we, we catch up and we record a conversation about like your mental state while doing this new project. And, and then and like, I was just like, Kayone, it's so long. It's so many words. <laughs> I love the idea of novellas. But anyway, that's a different conversation. <laughs> Tell us about the first person you're going to be reading from your book. And uh, let's hear it. Well, I have been encouraged by Kayone, I'm totally blaming you, to, to read a chapter. And, you know, I timed myself today. I can't not tell the truth, you know. So I just want people to know it's eight minutes. But listen, it's a great chapter. So I'm going to do my very best. Drink some water. If you have some snacks, put your feet up. Yeah. Uh, listen, I'm pro snacks all day, all night. Wake up in the middle of the night, have a snack. Okay, so this is the chapter about Rena Rusty Kanakogi. Born Rena Glickman in Brooklyn, Rusty Kanakogi was a redheaded firecracker from the moment she was born in 1935 to the time of her demise in late 2009. As early as age seven, Rena was a bit of a hustler, taking odd jobs anywhere she could get them. She found a sense of belonging amongst society's rejects, the freaks, hustlers, and barkers of the Coney Island underworld. By adolescence, she was the head of a street gang called the Apaches and was given the name Rusty after a local dog which I'm guessing involved a neighborhood child who began smoking at age seven, observing that Rena and said dog had the same color hair and thus a nickname was born. According to a 1986 profile in Sports Illustrated, Rusty's hero was her brother Charles, who spent hours squeezing hand grips and doing push-ups and then admiring his body in the mirror. 
Neglected at home, Rusty was a kid looking for attention and trouble. She started using her brother's exercise gadgets and working out. She was the biggest and was determined to be the toughest girl in her neighborhood. Rusty began to derive her self-worth from being a fighter and a protector. As Sports Illustrated tells it, she got a 12-stitch knife wound on her wrist while preventing an armed robbery in a restaurant. She jumped in between a sailor and a soldier brawling at a hotel dance and was pitched off a balcony, suffering a badly sprained back that pained her for the rest of her life. Rusty was troubled, feeling she didn't fit in with most men who wanted her to be typically feminine, which to her meant weak, or with women who she felt resented her for rejecting femininity. Rusty was at sea. In 1955, when she was 20 years old, a neighborhood friend, perhaps sensing that she needed a place to channel her troubled energy, introduced her to judo. She fell in love instantly. She convinced the judo instructor at her local YMCA to let her join his class of 40 men. I didn't go for the self-defense, Rusty confessed. I did it to calm down. I interpret that as using judo and the focus, energy, and camaraderie of training to help with mental health issues. While I can't find anything identifying Rusty as someone who battled anxiety or depression, feeling the need to calm down just says so much about potential internal turmoil. Maybe this judo class was also the pseudo family she yearned for, a place to belong. And finally, she did belong. Rusty was the first one to show up at class and the last one to leave. She practiced moves on subway platforms, and she even began to apply specific judo moves to her still fervent need to be the enforcer and protector. One day while riding the subway, she stopped exercising long enough to notice a pervert exposing himself on the train. She drove her knee into his chin, pinned his arm behind his back, jerked the emergency stop cord, and took him to the police station, still unzippered. <laughs> I'm, I'm in love. Some heroes wear capes. Some have ladies size 10 and a half triple E feet and a left baby toe that's been broken 13 times. Despite her natural affinity for judo, there was a kicker. Rusty couldn't compete. I mean, she could barely train. Why? Because she was a woman. Many years later, Rusty identified the one moment in her life that changed everything, the thing that would inevitably lead her to being deemed the mother of women's judo. In 1959, 24-year-old Rena decided to cut off her hair and tape down her breasts to compete with her all-male club in the New York State YMCA Championships Judo Tournament. Before her match, her coach pulled her aside and cautioned her, don't attract any attention to yourself, just pull a draw. As in, don't be too good, just, just be okay. That's what we call reverse Miyagiing for all you Karate Kid fans. But skilled and fiery Rusty could not tamp down her greatness. She triumphed in her weight division. When it came time to collect her medal after winning her bout, the suspicious tournament organizer asked her if she was a girl. She nodded, and he stripped her of her medal right then and there. This moment of injustice sparked something in Rusty that would change not only her life, but the lives of countless women and the sport of judo itself. In an article in the New York Times written towards the end of her life, Rusty recalled when that official asked her if she was female. She says, had I said no, I don't think women's judo would have been in the Olympics. It instilled a feeling in me that no woman should have to go through this again. It set her advocacy in motion. She was in for a hell of a fight. But this was a woman who was known to do leg squats on the D train from Brooklyn to Manhattan each morning. She wasn't going to go down quietly. 
1962, at age 27, Rusty felt so limited in how she was able to train in the United States that she moved to Japan. There, women had been training in judo since the 1920s in female-only groups. But guess what? Soon after joining the women's group, she pulverized each of her teammates. She was so out of their league, there was only one solution. For the first time in history, a woman, my girl Rusty, was permitted to train with the men at the Kodokan. She not only found a place to train and acceptance in Japan, but she also met her soulmate, Ryohei Kanakogi, a powerful black belt in judo over whom she towered. At one point, hot-tempered Rusty broke her hand fighting with a woman in a barroom bathroom for making a disparaging remark about the Japanese. It was then that she knew she'd found her true love because instead of scolding her, her future husband advised, quote, when you punch head, always wrap handkerchief around hand. They were married in 1964 by a Buddhist priest in New York City. By all accounts, Rusty was a funny, brash, loudmouth pain in the ass. Well, thank God. A driving force behind the battle for Title IX, she spent decades fighting for public recognition of women's judo, even going so far as to mortgage her house to sponsor the first women's judo championship at Madison Square Garden in 1980. She got into more than one screaming match with officials about it, and eventually she threatened to sue the Olympic Committee in 1988 to force them to include women's judo. She went on to coach the women's Olympic team that year. Can you say Titan? In a statement issued after her death, fellow pioneer and Women's Sports Foundation founder Billie Jean King said, nothing thrilled Rusty more than helping others, especially children. She said that helping a child who thinks he or she can't do something and showing them that they can do it, this was one of the greatest feelings in her life. Rina Rusty Kanakogi was a leader, a teacher, a sensei. The Japanese word sensei literally means one who has gone before, a fitting title for this trailblazer. Rusty was the first American woman to earn a seventh degree black belt. She was awarded the Japanese Order of the Rising Sun in 2008 and was buried in the Kanakogi family tomb with the epitaph, American Samurai. In August, to, oh my gosh, I get a little choked up. <sighs> in August, 2009, three months before her death and 50 years after she won it, the YMCA reawarded her the gold medal that had been stripped from her in that 1959 match. Domo Regato, sensei. Oh my gosh, I'm getting choked up by my own words. <laughs> Happening. happening. Thank you for that reading. Uh, yeah, no, it's when, so of course, when I got this book, I inhaled it. And a lot of, a lot of these stories give me goosebumps. A lot of them make me laugh, etc. But that, that one just hit like all the points and titling Rusty as sensei or one who has gone before is so perfect for frankly, everybody in this book. I mean, you go back as, as far as 1478 BCE to today, to people who are still alive today, who've dress like men to do that they weren't supposed to do. I'd like to hear you talk about the tension of being one who has gone before, right? Because on the one hand, a lot of the people in this book, if not most or all, have suffered in some way or another. And that suffering is then part of what caused them to move so many needles forward, right? And I don't know, I'd like to hear, since you've given this obviously so much thought, that tension, what do you make of that tension of having suffered, but also they've been the shoulders that many of us are standing on? I can't help but in this moment think about 
you know, here we are once again, uh, fighting for basic human rights, uh, in a moment where, you know, it feels like the messaging is, you know, you're less than human, you know, there's humans and then there's women. And so to me, this book is rather than this, the suffering, I think about the, I connect to the persevering, to the, the confidence that it takes, right. The belief to take these actions, right. It's so Rusty had a rough time, right? She was neglected at home, but like how she took that and transformed it and was a fighter, man. And I would say I'm a fighter. I'm an Aries. I'm ruled by Mars. (laughs) I laugh because I'm like, I'm not like some devout astrology person and like other people probably go, oh, when they hear that. But Mars is the God of war. And I would say, I I don't like to back down either. Would I have had the strength to do what Rusty did or what many of the people in the book did? You know, Catherine Switzer, when she signed up to run the Boston Marathon, she just wanted to run the marathon. And she happened to put down her initials instead of her full name. And they gave her numbers. And she showed up. And she ran. And, and she was attacked. And she was assaulted. And it was, and she was called, you know, she, I mean, it was ugly. It was violent, right? Well, I mean, to be fair, if a woman runs for too long, her uterus might fall out. So they were, they were just trying to protect her, Tracy. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, that chapter I learned a lot. I read Catherine's book uh, as research, and uh, the messaging that she got as as a young as a young woman was crazy. Your uterus is going to fall out. You're not going to be able to have children. One of the things she says in the book is she's like she has children. She's like anybody who's had a child knows that the practice of childbirth is so violent and so tra- traumatizing to the human body. Running down the street, running a marathon is nothing compared to like giving birth. What are you talking about? But the fortitude to sit there across from her doctor who said, why does a pretty girl like you want to want to run? And to just and to go, who is this guy? And to keep doing it anyway. And same with with Rusty. I mean, her going through that humiliation at that YMCA tournament again, like she said it in the New York Times article. It is why women's judo in 1988 was in the Olympics. Like those two things are they're linked. So you can't help but go. The greatness can come from the suffering that, like you said, the moving the needle, the change. And as a writer, like I put myself in this, in this book, I haven't, I haven't suffered. I haven't been through uh, horrible traumas, but I put myself in my own personal story and how I connected to each of them into the thing, because I just, I feel that connection just from women and uh, people who've been othered their whole lives to, to be diminished. I mean, the fact is, is I think that we're like the best, like we're better. (laughs) That was Tracy Dawson, author of Let Me Be Frank, a book about women who dress like men to do they weren't supposed to do. We recorded this conversation recently as part of an author series at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford. When we get back. I just wanted to include people that weren't just like all nice and pretty with a bow or a bow tie, as it were. (laughs) I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Why can't a woman be more like a man? Men are so decent, such regular chaps, ready to help you through any mishaps, ready to buck you up whenever you are glum. Why can't a woman be a chum? Why is thinking something women never do? But why is logic never even tried? Straightening up their hair is all they ever do. Why don't they straighten up the mess that's inside? Why can't a woman behave like a man? If I was a woman who'd been to a ball, 
been hailed as a princess by one and by all, but I start weeping like a bathtub overflowing. Or carry on as if my home were in a tree. Would I run off and never tell me where I'm going? Why can't a woman be like me? This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. You're listening to a recent conversation I had with Tracy Dawson. She's a comedian, playwright, and the author of Let Me Be Frank, a book about women who dress like men to do they weren't supposed to do. I interviewed Tracy at an event sponsored by the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford. Let's get back to our conversation. Now, some of these stories, of course, were people following their passions and the things that they love to do. Uh, but the ne- this next person I want to talk about wore men's clothes to save her life and her family's life. So I'd love to hear you talk about the amazing Ellen Craft. Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, when I discovered the story of Ellen Craft, I was shocked and upset that I'd never heard of Ellen Craft. Same. That took me a while to get over. Ellen Craft was a light-skinned, mixed-race, enslaved woman in Georgia. Her mother was a light-skinned, mixed-race, enslaved woman, which I say in the book, can, it, it's so innocently in all these history books, it just sort of is speaking to a lineage of rape and bondage. And it's so hard and it's so painful. Because uh, of her lineage, she could pass for white. She and her husband crafted, mm, crafted nice a plan to escape from Georgia, Ellen posing as a wealthy white male plantation owner, her husband posing as her enslaved valet. And they achieved this in 1840, 1849, 1848, ah, 1848. Apologies. And they took trains and they took ships and it's an wild story. And the fact that, you know, my running joke with my friends is my snark is like, I can't believe, you know, there's a bi- there's like this biopic called Ford and Ferrari, but nothing about Ellen Craft. No, that's all right. I just think how does every single person not know Ellen and William's story? So that was, a, a, it was a painful one to write, but it was also like, it just, it filled me up because they triumphed. And in fact, in 1850, they left America because the Fugitive Slave Act was enacted and their former enslavers were such, I mean, I don't even have words that I should put. Not good. Absolute treacherous <laughs> Went so far as to go to the president of the United States and say, we want your help to get our property back. And uh, it was not safe for them to stay even in a free state because the Fugitive Slave Act said that um, these hunters could pursue uh, them even in in free states. So they moved to England and they were there for many years until they came back to Georgia. And when they came back, they dedicated their lives to um, helping newly freed humans and women's rights. And they wrote a book and it was published in 1860. And so I think the book, I like to think that it, it runs the, the gamut of emotions. You know, I try to bring humor in. Of course, that chapter doesn't have a lot of humor because I, I just was authentically telling the story. And mostly I was just like aghast and like amazed, you know, that just everybody should know Ellen and William's story, period. Yeah. And the fact that Ellen had to do so much of the heavy lifting, you know, like mm. 
acting like this wealthy plantation owner. She wore her arm in a sling because she couldn't write. She could use it as an excuse not to have to sign stuff or write anything out, which was brilliant. It and was a brilliant decision to to say, look, we don't want to have to sign in at these registries. We don't want there to be a paper trail. I'll have my hand, my arm in a sling. But she had to perform. I mean, she had to perform a different race, a different gender, and a wholly different class, right? And so it's like, in those days, I mean, women, and especially African-American women, were expected to be invisible. So she was like the most visible and had to be this person who was supposedly very wealthy and was a uh, you know wealthy business person. I mean, it's it's... Who who was the enslaver of her husband? I mean, like that that must have been mind boggling as they were fleeing for their lives. It's I mean, it's an amazing story, and hopefully, um, there will be so much more coverage of it and discussion of it. I truly hope that. Um, I mean, it certainly should just be like a, a movie. Anyway, yeah, just one of the best. Yeah, I'm glad you covered it. Now, not all of the people in your book are kick well intentioned. Selfless humans, uh, one of the more sour characters in your book, the more difficult to read about, was Christian Cadell, a.k.a. John Dixon. Witch pricker. Witch pricker. Listen, I had never heard of witch pricking. Uh, I learned more than I wanted to learn. <laughs> um, you know, the witch trials and the witch hunts were, oof, talk about, I mean, when I was writing that, chapter, I, I think I say in the chapter, if I didn't, we edit it out, but like, I had to take a lie down. Like I had to take, I had to lie down at times because you learn about things and, uh, it's, it's very, very painful and devastating, but witch pricking was, there was one of many ways that, uh, these men were, were, uh, saying that they could prove that you were a witch and they would take a long needle and they would stick it into a specific spot where they were looking for the devil's spot. And if you didn't feel it or if you didn't bleed, you were a witch, right? And so Christian Cottle was a Scottish woman and apparently watched this happening and was like, this is all like a pantomime. Like, I mean, I could dress up like that and I could do it. And so she disguised herself as she went by John Dixon and then she took up witch pricking. Now, it's terrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like... There's, you know, a special place in hell for, uh, I think I say in the, in the chapter, talk about women not supporting other women. Yikes. But I do also want to examine or at least not leave out the possibility that this would have been a terrifying time. It's, it's pretty scary right now, but look, that was insane off the charts. Right. And was there a self-preservation quality to Christian's story, which is, well, if I'm a man and a witch pricker, maybe I'm protecting myself from being tortured and murdered. So I just tried to examine that in the chapter because, you know, was it opportunism? Was it ambition? <laughs> Making your living in this grotesque way. Uh, but also, you know, was there a, a self-protection aspect to that? But that was that was definitely a crazy thing to discover. And, and look, I wanted equal opportunity. Like, why should a book like this be about all people who were, you know, great or good or, you know, uh, 
it's sort of like, you know, in Hollywood, they always talk about how they want the anti-heroine. You know, we've got the anti-heroes, we've got the Tony Sopranos and the Walter Whites. That's like, we want some anti-heroines, right? So then I would write something with a character, like a female lead character who was like an anti-heroine and they would be like, whoa, that's, that's pretty dark. <laughs> and so you go, oh, so it's not what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And, you know, sometimes I kind of want to lean into when there's people that are a little bit less like unsavory, right? Because she did what she wanted to do. Even we don't have to like what she did. We don't have to admire her, but she still took her life into her own hands at a time when that was just still really unheard of, right? To just be like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to do this up thing. Eventually she was exposed because she accused a man named John Hay who was an influential court messenger. So he he had high status and everybody respected him. And they were like, well, this can't be true that John, because he's a stand-up guy. And so she's deported to Barbados, never heard from again. Yeah. My favorite part of this is that you point out everything she did was still considered a lesser offense than being a witch, which was an entirely made-up thing. Yeah, exactly. Like, what's funny is they were like, wait a second, she accused the wrong guy. He's a stand-up guy. Maybe this is all made up. You think? Maybe this is all made up. And let's send it to Barbados. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if Barbados then was like it is now, but... You're you're getting shipped off to Barbados, which... uh, Doesn't sound bad to me. Yeah, well, I think that it was 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 filled with plague and fever. Well, that does sound bad to me, yeah. You know, I think she probably didn't last very long. But I don't know all the details about that. The the information is and the documentation is definitely spotty. Uh, I wish I knew more, my gosh, right, about like what was her background and how did this fully come to be. But yeah, I just wanted to include people that weren't just like all nice and pretty with a with a bow or a bow tie, as it were. <laughs> that was Tracy Dawson, author of Let Me Be Frank, a book about women who dressed like men to do they weren't supposed to do. We recorded this conversation recently via a collaboration with the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford. After the break. As a little kid, she like she cut off her own hair. She took all of her dresses. She put them in their cooking pit outside and she set them on fire. More stories about amazing women. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Tracy Dawson just published Let Me Be Frank, a book about women who dress like men to do they weren't supposed to do. And we had a lot to talk about when I teamed up with the Mark Twain House for this conversation. Let's get back to it. One person I really want to talk about is someone who is very much alive today. They were born in 1990. Uh, Maria Tor Pekai, a.k.a. Genghis Khan. Tell me everything. Well, I'm in love with Maria. And Maria uh, Maria was born in uh, northwest Pakistan uh, in a tribal area in 1990. You know, it was uh, kind of a seething area and not super known for the advancement of women. And she was a little girl. She would look out the window and she'd see boys um, 
running and playing outside and, and girls were not allowed to leave the house uh, in her community without a male accompaniment, right? And so she didn't listen to that. And she says in her book, you know, I soon realized, you know, there's no, there's no gray area for, for someone like me. There's no such thing as a tomboy. Like it's like you're inside, you know, and that's it. Like there's no sports and there's no playing. And so from a very, very young age, she tells it in her book, her great book, A Different Kind of Daughter. As a little kid, she like, she cut off her own hair. She took all of her dresses. She put them in their cooking pit outside and she set them on fire. And her father, I mean, her parents sound amazing. And she was very lucky to be born to forward thinking parents, especially the patriarch. Her father was believed in education of girls and he recognized something in Maria that he knew from his sister and he'd seen it get squashed in his sister. And he said, you know what? I'm going to let her live as my son now because she wants to run and play and she wants to be outside and she's active and she's vibrant. And he said, okay, your new name is Genghis Khan, which is pretty dope. So she was a little boy so that specifically so that she could just be outside and play. And, and she would get into lots of fights. And he finally was like, oh, she's getting in a lot of tumbles. You know, he showed her the movie Rocky, became her favorite movie, which is amazing. And But there was no boxing. There was no boxing gyms where they lived. And so he introduced her to weightlifting. She excelled at weightlifting. She was still going as Genghis Khan, but it was boring. So then one day she discovered a very popular sport in uh, Pakistan at the time, squash. She started off training with the boys and they all thought she was a boy. And she was probably, I think she said she was the biggest one in her group, you know, like she had muscles. She was like a big girl, you know, and then they found her out. They all turned against her. They called her a slut. It was terrible and and awful. And she said, you know what? I'm not going to let this stop me. She then became basically the highest ranking female squash player in Pakistan. She became a national hero, but she was also a threat because the Taliban she describes in her book that her ancient, her bloodlines like are, are, are sort of mixed with the, the Taliban. So she comes from the same region. Okay. And so when she was gaining all these accolades in 2007, she was invited to, to appear with president Musharraf. I believe I'm saying that name correctly and was in the newspaper with a picture. She was the first girl to play with t-shirts and shorts. If you're an inspiration if you're moving the needle, you're also a target. You're also a threat. And so the death threat started for her and her family. It got scary because she also would go to these places and train and thought she's putting all these people at her gym at risk. And so she stayed at home. Like she was, she was going out, she was winning awards. She was playing all over. She was playing all over. She would go to the airport. She would go and she would come back. She was winning money and accolades. But then at a certain point, the threat got so bad that she stayed at home she turned her mattress on her side and she continued to train at home in her bedroom. Come on. Eventually her dad was like, you got to get out of here. She's like, I, I'm not even winning. A, I'm not winning anymore. Like I, my muscles, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm losing it. He's like, it's not about playing anymore. It's about your life. And she started to email people all over America, all over Canada, all over Europe and said, I'm this, I'm that, I've won these things. I'm a tribal girl. I reached number one in Pakistan. And for two years, she heard nothing until Jonathan Power, the great squash champion from Toronto, Ontario, uh, answered one of her emails after two years. He flew her to Toronto. He said, you're going to work in my gym and I'm going to train you. 
she got back into shape. I mean, it's an incredible story. I'm telling you everything, but listen, it's still worth getting the book (laughs) because uh, it's way better in the book than what I'm telling you right now. No, I mean, her story is phenomenal. I just, I love her. I'd love to meet her. I, I think that she's an absolute inspiration, what she achieved and what she uh, survived. Yeah. Her book again is called A Different Kind of Daughter. It was released in 2016. You can find her on uh, Facebook with her 122,000 followers, uh, Maria Tour Pakai. And so she's in your book along with so many others. And and I appreciate you narrow. It was ho- it was very hard for me to narrow down the people I really wanted to talk about in this book because there's something like 33, 35 people you talked about. One th- we, we cannot move on without talking about the writers um, who are scattered throughout your book and also in a section called Anonymous was a woman. In the introduction to the book, you talk about um, a Jezebel article by Catherine Nichols, Homme de Plume, what I learned sending my novel out under a male name. Mm-hmm. And that really sort of launched that idea. Maybe you could talk about that for a second. Yeah, I mean... There was something that happened to me uh, many years ago uh, where an executive had for TV writing had asked me what what shows I liked that they had. Maybe I would be interested in writing on. And I had said, you know, I like these shows. And then that executive said, well, there's no female needs on those shows. So and I was like, whoa, like it felt so shocking that someone would say to me, well, there's jobs available, but we've met our quota for women. And so we don't, we don't need you. And so that sort of planted something. And then when I read Catherine's article about sending out her book under her, fem- her real female name, and then sending it out again under the name George, and how much more positive response she got when she did that, you know, and it's, I mean, what year was that? I think it was 2015, 2016, oh lordy, 2017. I don't remember. I mean, recently, you you guys, recently. And so when I saw that and I thought about what happened to me and I just was like, I wonder like, because part of me, when that executive said that to me for like five seconds, I was like, should I disguise myself? Like, I mean, these are pretty small. You know what I mean? I don't really have cheekbones, you know, like, should I, I mean, it's five seconds. I didn't really think about Uh, doing that because it sounded like a lot of work and frankly, I'm lazy. But so it was like, it was just like hearing these things, reading these things and like going like, you wonder how many women through time, like if it's still happening with Catherine Nichols and her book, like I wonder how many people have done this, right? Disguise themselves in some way. And that's, that was like really just got it all going, right? Like that was just like the snowball because I really didn't think I was going to find that many people. I really didn't. And then I found a lot of people. And when I started to find so many women writers, I said, well, this has to be its own chapter, like sort of like a big compendium chapter in the middle of the book, which I decided to call Anonymous Was a Woman because of the um, the idea that uh, Virginia Woolf posits in A Room of One's Own, which is, it's not true, but like she says, you know, one would think that everybody who's ever signed their work anonymous might have been a woman, you know, and I just was like, oh, that's such a compelling, sensational idea, even if it's not true. So I don't think a lot of people, I mean, every single person that I know that's super well-read and everybody I know is more well-read than I am. When I asked them, did you know that Jane Austen never, like in her lifetime while she was living, only wrote anonymously, never used her name? And every single person said, I didn't know that. I said, did you know that the Bronte sisters, while they were alive, they only published using male names? They said, I didn't know that. And I said, well, there's something juicy there, right? There's something there that's like, you know, I'm no expert. I, I, you know, I haven't read every book on the planet, but like, I just was like, something's there. We got to do an author chapter about all the people who have 
who've done that, something like that, right? Which is, is it self-preservation? Is it about sales, Joanne Rowling? Even if it's about sales, even if it's about like, it's still baked into misogyny. Like it's still like anti-woman. Like, you know what I mean? Even if they're like, well, we want the wizard book to sell to the boys and we can't use like a woman's name. Like it just, I'm so sick of it. I'm so sick of like, when's it going to be enough? You know what I mean? Yeah. We were talking earlier about a friend of yours who has the book and showed it to his daughter. Would you say that this book would be good for kids? Well, listen. I did not, obviously there's swears in the book. And so I so many swears. There's not yeah. so many swears. There are so many swears, but they but they're perfectly placed. They're very appropriate when they're used. Don't scare people off. There's some swears. <laughs> there's a swear in the title, Tracy. <laughs> I don't consider a swear. I'm just gonna go on record. Not a cuss word. I think I saw it on, I think I saw like on sub, you know, like uh cop show or legal show on like primetime, like NBC television. And they said, I was like, it's official. It's not a swear anymore. (laughs) Anyway, it's not written for kids, but it's not so adult that, that cool parents couldn't show it to their cool kids. And to be honest, when I got that message that his daughter was reading it, I, I mean, I, I think I might've welled up because obviously I want people to know about these women. I want people to share these stories about these people had to do just to thrive, to play sports, to run a marathon. They wanted to go to school. They wanted to, you know what I mean? Like they wanted you to leave them the F alone. (laughs) I didn't say the F word. I said F, but anyway. uh, And so to me, like, that's a beautiful, I would love that. And one of the trade reviews said, you know, one of the lines in the trade review was like, this would be so, this would be so great for teenagers. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's interesting. Obviously it's like, you know, you're not going to tuck in your five-year-old with this book, but hey, maybe start them early, guys. Let's start it. Let's, let's start it early. <laughs> to consider all that we as a species have missed out on, mm. all the advances that haven't been made because these people had to do this crap just to exist, just to do the things they love or they care about. That to me is like a really dark current underneath all of this. We've missed out on so much. It's a real gut punch. It really is. And when you look at someone like Florence Hines, I mean, this isn't just about women being left off of uh, history pages. I say very early in the book, you know, the people that wrote history are, you know, famously like old white dudes. Right. And so it's like the idea of people who got left out of uh, the archives, who got left off the pages, who, who aren't, the biopics aren't being made about them it's women, it's black and brown people, it's queer people. And, and then you think about like Florence Hines is someone who was a sensation on the variety stage and who was part of a company that was turning the minstrel format on its ass. She was a male impersonator and she was the quotes, the the minimal amount of quotes that we can find. It makes it sound like she was literally like the top of her craft, like unparalleled for years. Right. But the documentation and the, and the stuff that was preserved and archived is so sorely lacking that it hurts because it's like she was a star. She was popular with white audiences, with black audiences. She was a crossover talent, you know, whatever that means. But like, you know, she was popular with everybody. But why wasn't the care there to preserve her story? Well, we know why. It's shameful. And 
Oh, there was another point that I was going to uh, like, you know, in Mary Edwards Walker, right? She was the, she's the sole recipient of the Medal of Honor. I talk about her in the book because she didn't disguise herself as a man, but she almost exclusively wore men's clothing because she said, I don't dress in men's clothing. I dress in my clothing. And she was the second American woman to graduate from medical school. And she became a surgeon and she went down when the civil war started. And she said, I want to help. I want to serve. And they laughed at her and they told her to get the out of her office. I said the F word. And I say in the chapter, just imagine all the innovation and the greatness and the achievement, innovation that we missed out on because they were like, we don't even want to hear it from you. We don't want to hear it. You know, a black woman in the, in the 1800s invents something. Now, I don't want, we don't want to give you a patent. We don't want to hear about it. I'm like, talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. You know what I mean? Like, so it's just, it's depressing. You know what I mean? And so I'm glad I got to write about Florence Hines, even though I don't know when she was born. We don't know exactly when she died. Like there's too much missing and it's, it's just shameful. That's the only word for it, you know? And that translates into now, who else aren't we knowing about? Who else doesn't have access? Who else can't offer humanity the best of all they have because of, because of, because of, I just want to tell you, I really look forward, Tracy, to your book completely exploding onto bestseller lists everywhere because every single one of these stories made me feel challenged. They made me laugh and gave me a deeper appreciation of how important it is to get in some, as John Lewis said, good trouble, necessary trouble until we don't have to anymore, until frankly, all marginalized people can be their whole powerful imperfect, authentic selves without changing anything that they don't want to in order to achieve it. And so I, I want to personally say thank you so very much for this book, Let Me Be Frank, a book about women who dress like men to do they weren't supposed to do. Thank you. What a beautiful, thank you so much for, you're so good at talking. <laughs> Thanks. Maybe I should uh, look into some sort of career on this. At this point, we moved on to the audience Q&A part of the night. And the next insight from an audience member was, I give you credit for being upbeat. If I were female, I'd be screaming out the window, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I am every day. That's what I do to wake up my vocal cords. <laughs> I am literally filled with rage every single day. But what am I going to do? I'm going to write a book about it. I got it published by a pretty big uh, publishing house. And I'm going to be funny because that is my experience with helping the medicine go down, which is helping people understand that these people existed, uh-huh. that their stories were sh- should have more attention. And in terms of someone trying to take away rights to my own body, yeah, I mean, I can't believe we're here. I can't believe it, right? So it's like, it's really hard. To, people are like, well, so what gives you hope? I'm like, if I'm honest with you, I don't have a ton of hope right now, but I believe in myself and I know that I'm a bad who like does not give up. And like everybody I know who identifies as female and and femmes are like that. And so I can only say, oh my God, every day I'm I'm filled with rage. (laughs) So don't you worry, question asker. I'm filled with rage. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a full, it's, it's, I feel like it's a human 
Um, it feels like everybody's angry because I'm thinking, yeah, we women are angry. We queer people are angry. Black people are angry. Indigenous people are angry. Trans non-binary people are angry. White men are angry. Everybody's angry. And it's like everybody... So what do we do with all this anger? And it feels like in the last couple of years, it seems like this has been a revealing time uh-huh. uh, in terms of how we all process our fear, uh-huh. right? Because anger is a is a fearful reaction, among others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's a whole another 18-hour conversation between all of us, but it's been really revealing to see how we all cope with fear and anger. And I really appreciate that one of the ways you're working through yours is by writing and letting us know that things were not always the way they are now and that we have work to do collectively. And then we can take inspiration. I mean, I can personally take inspiration from these stories. You know what I mean? It feels unfortunately very timely, but the people in this book, they in their way took matters into their own hands, but what they did with their bodies, you know, literally, yeah, I mean, I can get inspiration from that. It, you know, given the day, whatever day, time of day it is, I can be completely beaten down by something, or I can use it as fuel to be like, like, no way, man. Like yeah. I say at the end of the introduction, we always get up. We always get up, and I feel that on a micro level with myself, and my own personal defeats or mental health issues, and I also feel it on a on a big like the community, the tribe the people who have been othered for so long and um, we're not just going to lay down and take it. I know that. That was Tracy Dawson, author of Let Me Be Frank, a book about women who dress like men to do they weren't supposed to do. We recorded that conversation recently as part of an author series at the Mark Twain House and Museum. Thanks to Jody DeBrine, the Beatrice Fox Auerbach Director of Collections at the Twain House for making this all happen. You can check out all their events and house tours at marktwainhouse.org. Audacious is lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like what Buddhism has to do with collecting barf bags and bricks, Come dumpster diving with me at an Aldi and find out what Brandon Stanton of Humans of New York is thinking when he approaches a candidate to photograph an interview for a series. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>